it's not clear at all how power is going to change and how jobs are going to change because of artificial intelligence. What is certain is it will change. It's absolutely undeniable that there is going to be structural changes in the jobs that get done and how they're done and how much we pay for them. But what those changes are, we really don't know. We're just at the outset of something very big and transformative. Revolutions, by definition, change the way that we live. And for the past centuries, workers have had their lives reinvented time and time and time again. It happened during the agricultural revolution, the industrial revolution, automation and globalization. Digital technologies and the internet have already made the work of billions of us drastically different over the past few decades. And now there's possibly a whole new convulsive wave of change about to happen. Of course, driven by artificial intelligence. For many, I think this is a scary moment, especially when you think about our jobs. Are we about to all be automated out of our livelihoods? It feels in the world of work like we're standing at a crossroads, where one fork leads to massive unemployment, lots of layoffs, and the other to affluence, to greater productivity. Which direction will we take? Welcome to Power Trip. I'm Carl Miller, and I'm on a journey to uncover the shifting terrain of power in this world being reshaped by artificial intelligence. Who will be the winners and who the losers in the age of AI? This is episode two, AI and the Workforce. My name is Kenneth Kukier. I'm the deputy executive editor of The Economist. I've written several books on technology and society, one called Big Data, and I'm working on a new one on artificial intelligence and spirituality. The revolutions in the work that we've seen before have been very beneficial to professionals, right? The spreadsheet meant that accountants now could handle far more clients and a lot of businesses that didn't have basic accounting and bookkeeping and solid spreadsheet activity now did. So in some ways it was creative socially as this sort of commons of, of humanity. It was, it was beneficial to the small business entity that didn't have it before, the mom and pop shop that now did. It was beneficial to the bookkeeper or accountant that now could service more people and also still have, you know, go home at a reasonable hour and spend time on the weekends. Interestingly, that last bit is a little bit of a joke because the one thing that's happened in the economy over the last 30 years is that white collar professionals are working more and more than ever before. They, they can time shift some of their activities, but most people of, of great skill and talent um, are finding that they're working until midnight. Interestingly, you know, it's, we're not in the world of John Maynard Keynes, uh, as he predicted 100 years ago, in which we're all going to be sort of laying on a beach uh, reading, reading Shakespeare. In his 1930 essay, Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren, that influential British economist, John Maynard Keynes, well, he didn't quite predict verbatim that we would be on the beach reading Shakespeare by 2023, but reflecting on the technological progress of the time and its growing pains, he deemed that society was suffering from a bad attack of economic pessimism. Yet, he believed that these advancements had the potential to drastically increase the efficiency of production and lead to higher levels of wealth and abundance, as well as a significant increase in leisure time. Despite his predictions of the age of leisure, himself, John Maynard Keynes died at 62 when his heart gave out from a life of working too hard. And so, well, we're not all reading Shakespeare on the beach, are we? I'm sorry to say. But where are the directions of technical travel actually taking us? Should we be worried about automation replacing human jobs? And where will that leave us all, if not in a cabana flicking through a fellow? Hi, I'm James Besson, 
Executive Director of the Technology and Policy Research Initiative at Boston University. I'm an economist and formerly a technologist. I ran a software company for many years, and we study the major impacts of technology on society. What's it doing to the workforce? What's it doing to industry dynamism? And what sort of policies can we craft to optimize the social impact? Five, 10 years, things are not going to be much different. And in fact, automation may actually increase employment in many sectors. People forget how automation has worked for 200 years now. Automation doesn't simply mean a, re uh, a machine replaces a worker. It means a machine replaces a worker on a particular task. Now, what that most often means is that the worker still has a job. The worker's doing a different kind of work. Now, first off, that means for the individual, they often need to get new skills. They may need to get a new job. There's a transition involved. But the net number of jobs doesn't necessarily go down and often goes up, in fact. My famous example was the automated teller machine, which was assumed to going to replace the bank teller. And in fact, you look in the U.S. over the 10-year period where they installed some several hundred thousand of these ATMs, the number of bank tellers actually increased. And why was this? People forget about the effect of automation on the consumer. What happens is that when you automate a task, other tasks become more important. So the, the job of the teller became more of a marketing person than a cash handler. And also, though, the services become cheaper. So the banks, in fact, wanted to open more branches. It became less expensive for them to do so. And so they opened up many more branches. In fact, so many more that even though there were fewer tellers per branch, the total number of tellers increased. And we've just we've seen this repeated over and over. If you go to the Industrial Revolution, for a hundred years, the automation was taking over one task after another of the weavers. But the number of weavers kept growing because the amount of cloth was just exploding. Cloth used to be extremely expensive, and now it's cheap. Eventually, the, the consumer demand got satiated. And even though technology is still improving the yards of cloth produced per worker, and it's still going up, now demand isn't increasing so much that so we're seeing fewer weavers. A lot of these conversations are presuming that the world of tomorrow is just like the world of today, but with the technology. And that's always false. What we forget is that the technology, if you lower the cost of something, you don't do the same amount, just cheaper. You do far, far more of it. Stanley Jevons called this the Jevons paradox. Back in the 1800s, he was referring to coal and the usage of coal as you made coal more efficient in terms of engines and the steam engine, you didn't use less coal, you used more of it because you were now putting engines into lots of different areas where you didn't have engines before. So use of coal increased. So too, if you think about the accountant or the doctor, they're not going to simply be doing the same amount of what they already do. They've got a tool that gives them a hundred times more the ability, the power to be a professional, to do their work task. They may be servicing a hundred times more clients or servicing those clients a hundred times better. And so therefore you can imagine that they still will have a job, even though they're going to be using these tools. The calculators did not put mathematicians out of business. What we had was a society that was able to handle harder problems. We may have the same issue with AI. So 
what Jevons noticed all those years ago might still matter perhaps today. It might be that as AI automates tasks that until now we, the humans, have done, we might actually see an increase in labour demand and not the opposite. Maybe we'll see more jobs and not less. Or will we simply be working harder up, as Ken says, till midnight, far away from that beach with a fellow? That's coming up after the break. The first thing economists do is they separate jobs and tasks because jobs are made up of tasks and look at what tasks are prone to automation and which aren't. So if you are a lawyer and you need to go to the law library and look up a citation and you use a paralegal, paralegal's job might really be in jeopardy because now the lawyer can do it himself, herself, doesn't have to go to the paralegal. This is the trend that's already happened for the last 25 years, I should add, but just with the internet and putting things online and databases. But now you've gets going to be even better. Interestingly enough, we have even seen an early foray of generative AI into the law. And the joke is that, that ChatGPT came up with the most preposterous, inaccurate citations and a judge blew the whistle throughout the pleading and actually sanctioned the lawyer who went, was such a dunderhead that he went through ChatGPT to produce his brief. So interestingly, we still might need lawyers, right, to do their, their tasks. In some areas, though, if you look at the job and the task, if it's almost like a one-to-one -one correspondence, those jobs definitely will be crimped. And I'll give you one example. The famous Faye Osborne study from Oxford, the Martin School, which talked about, this about 10 years ago, referred to about something like 50% of jobs were prone to automation. They didn't give a time frame for it, but they said maybe in the next decade or so. One of the number one jobs that they cited that was most prone to automation was model. And I used to have a hoot and a holler about that. I traveled the world giving talks about why this was the most preposterous thing. Like you wanted a human being. Yes, you could do this online with a digital mannequin, but it wouldn't be the same. Now, of course, the hoot and the holler and the, the laughter rebounds to me. I'm the one who's the joke because I didn't see to what degree that you could actually increase the number of areas where you would want a Similiacrum of a human model, all the e-commerce websites, et cetera, and so many other ways that you could actually not have to pay to have a, a studio shot with a actual real life model wearing your clothing, but you can simply do it digitally and you can change it and you can do all the things you can get, all the benefits that you get from digitization in the same way that if you had to produce a text manuscript, you definitely want to do it on a PC rather than on paper with carbon paper and a typewriter. So suddenly you say, ah, yeah, for models, we probably are going to need far fewer models. The ones who actually we use, the real live human being models, they're probably going to get more, at least some of them will, than they ever would before because they're going to have a real brand built around who they are. So that's why I think the economy is going to shift in different directions than we think. We're going to use these tools to do a lot more of what we're already doing. But at the same time, some people, in that domain are going to not have work, right? They're gonna to to do something else, ever thus, but others are gonna reap a lot of reward. So what do you do if you're a professional? Well, you've gotta figure out, well, what makes you distinctive so you can reap the rewards or at least still stay in the game and not just be crushed by the wave. And this brings us now to another sort of power, one that's always hugely mattered in moments of revolutionary change. 
workers' power. That's collective bargaining of employees influencing the decisions that their companies take. The nature of work and the shape of the economy has never been simply set by tech. It's also been about strikes and barricades, walkouts and deals. It's also about politics. Hi, I'm Darren Jones, Labour MP for Bristol Northwest, Chair of the House of Commons Business and Trade Committee, and I'm the Founder and Chair of the Interparliamentary Forum on Emerging Technologies, which is a global network for legislators interested in the regulation of technology. The one thing that's clear, I think, at the moment is that the companies that are being very proactive in buying and implementing technology to improve productivity have a tendency to do it to workers, not with them. And so we do already see case studies in the UK and in the United States where workers feel that they are being surveyed or oppressed. The technology is being used in an extractive way to get profit out of people as much as possible and to improve the productivity of human workers as much as possible. But it's not really being seen as a positive opportunity by workers to improve the quality of their work or to earn more pay or to work fewer hours. And my argument's been for a long time that you're not going to get widespread tech adoption in a very successful economic way unless people want to use the technologies. If you do it in an extractive way, people are going to strike, there's going to be lots of angry people, governments might end up trying to ban things or regulate things because the public get very cross about it. So what we need to do is look at the case studies that exist today and say, well, actually, it'd be better for businesses and the public services that we reform to work with workers from the very beginning about how these technologies will change the nature of their work, how we support workers through those transitions and what the positive opportunities will be for them. I think we can do that. We can do that now without much difficulty. So we might not be able to see far enough ahead yet to tell whether your job or mine is going to be automated or to make a call about whether we're going to see far fewer jobs in general than we currently have. But one danger, already very clear, is about how new forms of power tend to get used by the already very powerful, about how old power converts to new, in other words. And maybe this is the other paradox we need to pay attention to. Moments of great change, revolutionary change, great disruption, can actually just settle and widen the inequalities that already exist. And there's one other important thing. There's going to be greater wage inequality. So one of the things we find is that these winner companies that have the technology, have the systems, they pay a lot more than other companies. Wage inequality has grown over the last 20 years. Everybody knows that. But in fact, almost all of that inequality has come from differences between what firms pay and not within the firms. It's not that certain workers are earning more and others less within a firm. It's that who you work for starts to matter more. And that seems a little crazy, and it's not the way we think about how labor markets work, but they're big differences. So we found, if you look at job ads, if you're talking about a company that is investing a lot in these new technologies, they're going to pay on average 17% more for the same job description, same education, same occupation, all the details are comparable. Uh, they're going to pay 17% more for the same job. That's a big difference. We've just heard about the potential economic disparities brought about by AI, but how is this inequality going to be distributed? Recent data shows that more working age women in the US are employed than ever before, with labour force participation rates soaring to record highs. However, here's the twist. 
As AI technology like ChatGPT advances, economists are projecting that the very jobs women have been making strides in could be disproportionately affected. A recent analysis by Goldman Sachs reveals that nearly 79% of working women, that's nearly 59 million across the United States, are in occupations that are susceptible to disruption and automation by AI. This stands in stark contrast to 58% of working men. Sectors that are more AI exposed, such as office and admin support, healthcare, education, community services, all have a significant number of women employees. These are the roles that AI could potentially automate and therefore remove. And it's not just women who will be disproportionately affected. All of this leads us to the question of who the AI revolution will propel and who will it forget. That's coming up in episode three of Power Trip, AI and Society. Thanks for listening to this episode of Power Trip. You can access all episodes of the series now by subscribing to Intelligence Squared via Apple Podcasts or in the link in the show notes. Please do follow and rate the series wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Carmilla. This series was produced and edited by Catherine Hughes.